as soon as I open it, roaches. To where when I walk in the house, <laughs> did you scream? Hold, <laughs> I don't know my life. Brother. Welcome back to Econics Talks, guys. When I pop up. Everybody gonna be like, man, overnight success. Lifestyle topics, entrepreneurship, and investing. Are you serious about this? Because if you are, then I'm willing to back the business. We want to inform you, educate you, and empower you so that you can maximize your life. Let's get started. Before we start today's episode, I want to remind everyone about our exclusive private group for entrepreneurs. A lot of times we suffer in silence and just having that support system while on this entrepreneurial journey can really help us out a ton. That's why we created this group and we want you to be a part of it. The link is in the show notes and we will be offering free memberships to the first 10 people who join. Just enter the promo code Econics 2020 to get access. Now on to our show. Welcome back to another episode of Econics Talks. Today, we have Gregory Jackson. Do you like being called Gregory or Greg? Oh, Greg is fine. Greg is fine. All right, cool. So yeah, we have Greg Jackson on. He has a really, really intriguing story that we're definitely going to take some time to unpack. He is a full-time entrepreneur. He has multiple streams of income, and he's actually built a lot of different types of businesses that we will be talking about. So for those of you who don't know what entrepreneurship is, you have to have multiple streams of income. So uh, without further ado, here's Greg Jackson. So go ahead and introduce yourself, man. Or if I didn't already do it. <laughs> that was great. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, again, I'm Greg Jackson. Um, I come from a long lineage of entrepreneurs, frankly. Uh, my, my grandfather and grandmother uh, built their wealth on the family farm. Um, and by wealth, I mean, that's probably a very uh, ambitious term for what they, the, the, the way that the means that they were living, but they built enough wealth to send their kids to college. Um, and so my parents were first generation college. Um, of course, they worked nine to fives, but they always had side hustles and different entrepreneurship uh, projects and journeys going on. Um, and even they're both retired now, but each of them still are running small businesses um, in their retirement. And so they kind of planted that seed in us. Um, and so I've worked in politics for about 14 years in different areas of life. Um, but for the last five years, I've started uh, three small businesses and kind of journeyed into my own entrepreneurial route, uh, which has been very exciting, um, but also very challenging at times. Um, but most importantly, I think it's been profitable. Um, and so uh, just excited to share a little bit more and, and excited to be here on next podcast. Yeah, man. Thank you so much for coming on. So um, let's go ahead and dive right into it, man. So tell us a little bit about your passion. So you obviously you have a passion project called Community Justice Action Fund, and that's something that you, you know, you have personal experience with. So can you tell us how that came about, how you became an advocate for um, ending gun violence? Yeah, um, it was it was pretty crazy, actually. Um, you know, I always worked in politics. And when I was working on the Obama campaign, after he won, I was uh, hired to be a part of an issue organization called Organizing for Action. Um, and in that, in that role, I was the first uh, Black employee brought on, oversaw the Southern region. Um, and we were trying to figure out what issues we wanted to advocate for in the president's second term. And a lot of my job was to help build the community outreach to understand the issues and understand how we could win on it. Um, but coincidentally, as we were in that space of kind of figuring out what to do, uh, some of my family were in town um, for a bachelor party, frankly. And 
we literally took the wrong turn and got caught in the middle of a crossfire. Um, and I was shot. And oh, wow. He, yeah. And being shot was like not, you know, it wasn't like the movies, you know, you don't just shake it off. Oh, you got grazed, whatever, move on. You know, for me, it was it was way more severe. Um, the bullet hit two arteries. And so I spent um, 21 days in the hospital, went through six different surgeries and then actually had to spend six months um, bedridden um, in recovery. Wow. Um, in that time, you know, I, I just learned a lot. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot, a lot about the world. I learned a lot about my family, my friends. Um, but most importantly, I learned a lot about like where my direction is. Um, and I'll never forget that feeling of knowing that, you know, my life could could have ended and maybe should have ended in that moment. Um, but God kind of kept me around for something bigger. And so um, I kind of came out of that experience on fire to try, you know, just really just to figure out what I can do, how I can have an impact um, and how I can help change things. Um, I started to work um, at city government um, working with different projects to address gun violence in Washington, D.C. Um, but then a family friend of mine, unfortunately, was killed um, last summer. And so at, that was in Greensboro, North Carolina. And so after that, um, I knew that I need to do something that was more than just local, um, although local is important. And so um, I joined a nonprofit um, called the Community Justice Action Fund, and we focus on advancing policy to end gun violence in black and brown communities. Um, but there was a big challenge here. The big challenge was in order for me to take on this policy oriented nonprofit lifestyle, um, it meant I would have to take a very significant pay cut. Um, and so I had to make a real decision, you know, do I stay where I'm comfortable financially um, or do I take this pay cut and get creative, you know, about building wealth and building resources and, and being smarter about my dollars, but most importantly, finding other sources of income. And so I committed to, you know, taking this pay cut doing what I knew I was passionate about, knew, doing what I knew would be helpful um, for the world and for my family and for Black folks all over the country. Um, but then also just challenging myself to figure out how am I going to build wealth in creative ways um, and continue to not only um, thrive, but to, to grow um, financially. And so that's where a lot of my entrepreneurial um, efforts really kind of ramped up in pace um, and really in my aggressive approach to it. Wow. That's a lot to unpack, man. Um, I actually, crazy that you say my background is, is was in politics as well before I made a transition to uh, corporate America. Um, and one of the reasons why, you know, I left the arena of politics was because one, the pay is, is not there. And at the end of the day, you know, we all have families to feed. Um, but yeah, I definitely understand. So for you to actually, you know, take that pay cut to, to, to do something that you were passionate about is, is, is more than commendable. So as you, you know, as you battled through that, that, that tragedy, you know, what were some of the things that people necessarily didn't see? Because like you said, you know, on the movies, um, it, it, they make it seem like, oh, it's something easy. You get through, you're in the hospital, you out, you good. But were there any, any type of, of, you know, mental effects or any hiccups that you had to, you know, push through and battle through as time has moved on? Oh, man. Um, plenty. Um, I mean, I think one of the biggest things was when you are impacted by that, something that fatal um, or near fatal. Um, and it was, you know, malicious. Um, you know, you just have a whole different perspective on people. You know, I think before that happened, I would always uh, think the best of people. Um, but when that happened, I realized there is a darker side, you know, and, and that stress and, and trauma and 
um, coincidences can push people to, to that level. One of the other bigger things though that I learned, which is pretty crazy, was how expensive it was. You know, I think we all joke about, you know, going to the hospital, being shot maybe. And, you know, we talk about the rappers and whatever, and we kind of look at it lightly, but um, for me, you know, that was over $20,000 in medical bills. And so while wow. I was physically, you know, physically I was recovering and, and emotionally I'm working through it. Mentally I'm working through it. Financially, that's a hell of a bill. You know what I mean? And, and even like, yeah, about, that's, and that's something you don't expect. That's something you don't now, prepare I mean, for. You know, at 50 Cent, when he got shot, you know, of course we heard the songs and stuff. What we don't know is that um, he had a $32,000 bill in the hospital in 2000 when he was shot and he walked he out. He walked out on that bill. <laughs> he walked yeah. out on the bill. Yeah. You know, I actually that. just heard the interview the other day. He told the uh, doctor, he said, I'm not paying that. So many of us go through that, you know what I mean? And go through similar situations. And for me, that was, that was a really big challenge. And so luckily I was able to get some resources and support. Um, some do a few government programs and family and, friends but you know that's one people don't realize that it's not only traumatic physically and emotionally financially it could destroy you and so many of us unfortunately are are, are falling off the deep end in debt after going through something that traumatic yeah so from there once you you know started to get reacclimated to you know building back what you lost then you were you decided to start you know some businesses so can you talk to us about that i know one of them is called the wave another one is called pbf yeah. pbf sports so start talking about the wave and what that platform does for for black people in, in commerce yeah i mean so the wave funny enough it started out of um a few friends we just really like to go to brunch and we would go to brunch and have a great time and then we pay this $80, $90 tab and walk home, you know, with the good, good memories, but not really making good financial decisions. Um, but we also had like a big group of folks who would come. And, um, you know, when the wave was founded, it was frankly just a place for, it was a way for us to, you know, communicate and convene for brunch. Um, but that group quickly grew from 20 people to 70 people to 200 people to 2,000 people, to 8,000 people. And now we're at over 70,000 people across the country. Um, and it's basically, you know, it's more than brunch now, obviously, but it's basically a, um, a, a network of young black professionals across the country that are like-minded, that really want to get together for social, social fun, social activities, but also, you know, got jobs and other things to worry about. So not trying to do too much, not trying to waste too much money, not trying to be in danger, you know? Um, and so, that has really grown tremendously um, through that through that platform. We've been able to organize really amazing events. Um, I think one of our biggest was we did um, when Black Panther, the movie came out, we did what was called Enter Wakanda, which was a pop-up bar in Washington, D.C. And we basically renovated an entire bar to um, to pay homage to the Black Panther comic book and the, and the movie. Um, and we had over 6,000 people come through that bar in five days. And it was tremendously um, impactful um, as far as culture goes. But the bar itself, which was black owned, that could barely clear, you know, six, 7,000 a month, made $100,000 in five days. Um, and no, so we were that, able to- See, that to me is, that's moving economically. Like that's making, you took care of a local business, you were able to help them out and- we all, you know, you guys were able to do that by just pulling together and just having some fun. Like that yeah. that type of stuff is 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 
it's so powerful, man, to really dive into group economics and people really don't understand the power of group economics and how impactful it is to our to our local businesses. You know, if 10 people decided to shop for, you know, at a local business, you know, instead of buying soaps from um, from Walgreens and CVS, but they, you know, purchase them from a local owned business, they, you, you, you tend to, you get that back into the community. You know, those dollars go back into the community. I'm not saying if you, you know, you can't go to Walmart or Target or whatever, but if there's some, some, you know, items that you might want to go grab, go grab them, go grab them from a, go grab them from a local business where, you know, your dollars are going to support, um, you know, that, that person and their family. Um, so how, how does that process look to be able to mobilize that many people? Because there are a lot of people out there who want to start um, essentially a collective in their respective communities. So how does that look from the ground up to be able to pull those type of people together? And I would say it's really three things. One is making sure you build a culture that's healthy and supportive and empowering. Um, I think that was from the group chat from the beginning. You know, we started on GroupMe and it was just known that everyone there was either friends or friends of friends, right? And so everyone kind of honored the space because they were, you know, it was a culture. It was already a culture established of why we were there, what this is about, um, and that this is a positive space. So I think that was that's a really, really big thing to reinforce early. Um, the second thing is, you know, we also treated every person that's in our network, not like a customer, but like a friend. And we all, nobody wants your friends to pay too much for food. Nobody wants your friends to buy overpriced drinks. No one wants your friends to get caught up in line. No one wants your friends to get kicked out by security. You know, so, so we tried to make sure every experience, we, we designed it in a way that it was um, something that we would personally want to enjoy. And then if our five or 10 friends were with us, they would enjoy it too. Um, the third thing is we really held venues and people who we partner with accountable. Um, because again, we're trying to protect our friends and give our friends a positive experience. So we made sure that we negotiated with the bar what the deals would be. And we negotiated the menus, we negotiated the, the cuts, we negotiated if there was a cover charge or a ticket fee. We negotiated all of that down. Um, but we also negotiated um, with the suppliers, right? The wholesalers, the liquor, su liquor suppliers, the, we even worked with Coca-Cola, like their national warehouse to get drinks donated to help us, you know, take take some money out of the overhead so it wouldn't land on our friends. Because um, again, so, we- I want to put a pin in that, not to cut you off, but I want to put a pin in that so you can kind of expound on that a little bit more. Because some people don't understand what event spaces look like. And essentially what you did was you cut out a lot of expenses by essentially cutting out a middleman and going directly to the manufacturer and saying, hey, can we buy these wholesale? Can you take a deeper dive into that process of those of cutting expenses? So what type of expenses would you want to cut? What types of not shortcuts, but what types of, of advice can you give to somebody who is looking to get into that space when it comes to um, negotiating and what to ask for, you know, as far as, you know, the menu? What can you break that down for me? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the, keep it simple. I mean, every brand that you think about. You know, Coca-Cola, uh, Ciroc, um, Captain Morgan, all of them have goals. They have sales goals, just like any other company. And as big as they are, they still want to grow. They still want to compete. They still want to succeed. They also have sales teams and marketing teams. And those folks have marketing budgets. 
And their goal is how many cases of this alcohol can we sell? And how many can we get out the door? Now, of course, they're going to look at lounges and clubs and whatever's the most popping in the city. Uh, but they're always looking to expand their market um, and expand their reach and expand their sales, frankly. And so what we did is we built relationships with those folks. And no, we didn't have some big mega club or, you know, compound or nothing like that. No, we didn't have that. But what we did have is people. Um, and we knew that if they were looking for a market to help boost sales and in innovative ways beyond their typical club and lounge nights, that we were this creative alternative that maybe could help boost their numbers by two, three percent. So that's how we were able to negotiate with them and say, all right, we're not going to this main cool club that's white owned, but we're going to this black owned spot around the corner that we know is cool. We know has a good space, but maybe it doesn't have the foot traffic, but we'll guarantee 3,000, 4,000 people be there or maybe 500 people be there, right? And so we would able, we, through that, through those relationships and through those numbers and having receipts, you know, of what you've done in the past, we were able to convince them to give us, you know, different packages for wholesale or maybe cut a deal with the actual bar. Um, or if they couldn't cut a deal, maybe just throw an extra product so we can give away free shots or something like that. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. So that's, that's not how we attacked it. It's like, you can, I mean, yes, you can go straight at the manufacturer, but if you actually build a relationship with the sales teams and marketing teams, they have budgets, they have, they have product. Um, they have, they also have all types of cool giveaways and stuff, you know, they have a whole uh, infrastructure to, 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 right. to strengthen their sales. Um, and they are typically routing that towards the mainstream um, sources. But if you can make a good case for it, you can recruit them to help you with your event. So how long have you guys been hosting meetings and how have you guys transitioned or pivoted since the pandemic has, uh, has hit? Yeah, well, I will say the pandemic has been tough um, because we had a lot of big events that were, you know, on the verge of, you know, breaking three, four, five thousand people. You know, we had two or three that we thought would be at that scale um, this year um, that we had to put on hold. And so what we've done is we actually pivoted to building out the digital space um, because one thing that was really clear was we were on GroupMe. We had folks, you know, texting each other like crazy. And we're even seeing this now in new apps like Clubhouse where, you know, black folks are just flooding into these spaces. They're flooding into black Twitter. But all of that is because, I mean, even the verses, right? Verses exist because we don't have a really plat a great platform for streaming that people are tuned into. Um, and so we're, we're venturing now into the space of building our own space um, for folks to convene, to talk culture, to talk about what needs, and most importantly, to find events with like-minded folks. And so um, our app is in development now. Um, we're still seeking investors for folks who might be interested, feel free to reach out. Um, but we're hoping to launch in early 2021 um, and basically replace a lot of this makeshift technology that Black folks have used to, to keep connected and replace it with something that's kind of designed for us and more focused on our needs and our cultural, um, our cultural uh, preferences. Right. So that that's actually very interesting, man, because um, as as the pandemic has hit, you know, you've seen a lot, a lot of companies flock to places like Blue Jeans, flock to places like Zoom and other streaming services. Um, what's another one? Um, Skype. That's another one. Um, so. Yep. Mm-hmm. So they've, they you now you had now you see, you know, places like Zoom have an opportunity to play games. You know, you, it is crazy. You have drinking games. You have all kinds of games on Zoom now uh, where you can actually interact with, with, with people and family. 
But, you know, I actually was interviewing one of a, um, another, another friend of mine about how he's pivoted during the pandemic and it's, it's affected everybody. And when you look at entrepreneurship, man, and you look at, you know, running a business, you have to be able to pivot and make adjustments at any time. Um, I'm not sure what you were doing in 2008. Um, I was actually just going into college, but I could not imagine losing my 401k, losing this, losing that, being hit and being over leveraged, like to be able to make it through, you know, that type of recession. Um, and then even now in 2020, um, being able to navigate these types of waters and, and granted, we've made a lot of progress um, from since, you know, February, but you know, this thing is here to stay for at least for a little bit longer. And we, we really aren't, <laughs> we aren't, we're, we're going to have to do business uh, the best way we can. So what would be your advice to, to anybody who's out there who, who is trying to do the best that they can during COVID? Man, I mean, I would, I, honestly, as, as crazy as this is, um, I watch Game of Thrones. I'm a big Game of Thrones fan. And I don't know if other folks out there. If you're not Yo, watching, I love Game of Thrones. I hated yeah. the ending. I, I'm For those out there, I'm not going to spoil it. But yeah, I'm, I'm big rough. on, man. It got rough. It got rough. <laughs> It but, did. Um, it did. But I will say there's one, one of the, there's a lot of amazing quotes, but there's one quote in there that kind of stuck with me. And I think it applies this time is when um, Littlefinger, he said, um, chaos is a ladder, right? And I think right now we're seeing our economies in chaos, our economic systems in chaos, our health systems in chaos, our political worlds in chaos. Um, but for the people who are willing to like triple down and do more work and think more creative and try new things, there are just so many more opportunities that are out here in this madness, right? And there's so many new things that people need that they don't know they need yet. Um, and there's so many old things that people didn't appreciate that they appreciate more in this pandemic. And so my advice would just be to try a lot of different things. I know it's tough, but like, just give it a shot. Like if you have one business, that business should have three different streams of income. And so if you're only, if you've been laser focused on one service or one product, Now's the time to test out other products or test out other services and see if you can see if they stick. Um, and I really think if we can all just be a little bit more creative, um, the, the, the wins are there. Um, and I'll say, even for me, it's been very tough for two of my businesses. Uh, but my third one has been outperforming the first two by far. And that's simply because I'm just trying new things and reaching out to new potential customers and clients and recognizing that there's still a lot of untapped potential out there. So I know that was kind of vague, but like the, the big tip is like, try, just keep trying different things um, because no one knows what will stick. And frankly, what you think someone else has already tried, I would not be surprised if they have it. <laughs> so just give it a shot. Right. You know, and to comment on the economy and everything, it's crazy because even before the pandemic hit, our economy was already not doing well. And it was just propped up on a lot of fake, <laughs> fake, fake news. And I hate that word, but like literally fake news. And our, people, people who, who invest into the stock market, they, they probably understand this a little bit better. But, you know, when, when any president, not just because it's Trump, when any president gets up there and they say certain things, the market moves a certain way because that's just how, that's how the market responds to news about the Fed, news about different rates, different this, different that. And they always respond to, to how 
um, that administration is is whatever they're saying. So when Trump would get up there and talk about China and then he's going to cut a deal and he's not going to cut a deal, the market would move certain different certain ways. But the craziest part to that is the pandemic hits and a lot of businesses were exposed. So, mm-hmm. you know, you hear a lot about you hear a lot about um, people living paycheck to paycheck and they need that next check to survive. They need this next check to survive. Well, we saw in this, in in the last year, that that was very true for businesses as well, for a lot of small businesses and local businesses. Hell, even a lot of these big businesses out here um, that, you know, are supposedly doing well. It's just one of those things where a lot of people were exposed. A lot of businesses were exposed and their, 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 um, their spreadsheets weren't as as long as we thought they were, you know? So it's, it's definitely interesting to see even major companies, how they've pivoted, how they've transitioned into, um, into this type of climate, because, you know, places like Amazon and other, other, you know, people who are leading in the, in these industries, they've made billions during this time. They've made billions. So don't think that that pie is just, too small and at the end of the day like it's money to be made you just have to get creative just like you were saying you got to get creative and you got to be willing to try things um which leads me to 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 this point what made you start pbf sports and can you explain what that is and and because that's a that's not a you you know i've heard you talk about it before and and it really didn't sound as hard as i thought it would be so can you explain that yeah, I will say, you know, I wasn't alone. It was about seven of us that started it. Um, but what's crazy is we we actually, I mean, it, it was born out of frustration, to be honest. We were, we were playing flag football for a white-owned league that, frankly, we didn't feel like appreciated us. Um, they wouldn't let us play our speaker on the sidelines. We're warming up. You know, we went to the different... Yeah, and after- they had all the rules. All the rules, but they had terrible yeah. referees. Um, they had, you know, we, we would have the after social at the bar and it'd be country music and Bud Light. And we were like, you know what, this is this is a sport that we love. And there's a lot of us, um, but we don't feel like we're getting the, the support or the cultural experience or even like the football experience, you know. So we just ventured out. We just did our own tournament. We got a, a field for twenty five dollars. Um, we bent, picked up some footballs at Walmart. You know, we borrowed some flags and we got a fold up table and some champagne bottles and I think like a $50 trophy and we marketed it and um over 100 people came and played and they had a ball you know and it was like fun it was cool our friends were all there all the folks we knew that had their own businesses were sponsoring teams it was almost like almost like a street a street ball tournament like back in the day like I'm sure you've seen like paid in full and all that yeah like in that era you know they had like street you know yeah like you know just different like sponsors people sponsor their own team right, or coaches right. and we were like, oh, man. We, but we realized like if you if you actually lean into the culture a little bit football is already a sport that black folks really love to do anyway um and so right. like, man, and it sounds like you really out. brought out the culture in that like yeah so yeah and, and let's talk about that because that's that's important to any type of business is, is culture mm-hmm. so essentially what you did was you found a, a, a deficiency in the, in the current market of e- even a sports league and you found that, you know what, this isn't speaking to this demographic of people. And the irony of it is most people who play football at, at a professional level, at least, are black. And you just like, you know what, I know we got the numbers. 
most of us play football. The majority of the league is going to be African-American. So when you take that and you say, you know what, let's just take this, just take our own and create our own league. Now you have more control. Now you have direct control over that culture. So what were some of the things that you guys did in the beginning to kind of set that culture so that you made everyone feel more inclusive, especially, especially us? So three things. One, we uh, made sure that there was music because <laughs> music is kind of like our, I don't know, our blood. Music is, it. yeah, it, it, it's something you want to hear. It's, yeah. I, I can't explain it. It's just, we love it. Yeah. And we invested in a DJ and we made it like real. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't a little corner speaker and a little beats pill or something. It was a DJ, right? And it was like, all right, now, you know, that you're going to be hyped just hearing that. Second, we, we made sure, we made sure it was co-ed. Um, and even our ownership team is co-ed. And I think that changes the dynamic of what it is. It's, it's fun, but it's not too athletic. Um, it's right. competitive, not over the top. And frankly, you know, everyone is on their best behavior when they know the ladies is watching or vice versa, you know. And so that was a huge thing that helped the culture and made it more fun and social and not just pure athletic, you know, who's the greatest player of all time type of thing. Um, the third thing is we made sure that we invested in the professionalism of the experience. And I think a lot of times we cut corners in that. We just assume because it's fun, because it's social, that it can be casual and professional nature. But no, like we made sure. We had the website, we had paperwork, we had our insurance, we had waivers, we hired professional referees from high school, you know, high school games around the neighborhood. Um, and so we, we made sure that like every, the t-shirts were done, they were folded, you, you came in, there was a check-in system. Like we made sure that the actual professional, the actual customer experience was very professional and a well-oiled machine so that we could keep the, keep the players from thinking about the experience off the field and more focused on what's happening on the field, right? When they get there. Um, and right. so I think the three elements made, made our organization really um, stand out because people had great times. They it was very co-ed. It was fun. It was social. You can date, you can holler, you can still be there. People would come. I mean, we would have more people watching the games than actually playing the games. Because so it was it because it was a cultural event. It was, it was more about the experience. And exactly. when people, when people talk about providing a customer experience, it's more or less like now you have families that come out there because they want to see their dads play. Or now you have families that, that when you, when you create certain things around that type of event, now it's like, okay, well, is this a family friendly event? So a lot of women come into play because they, a lot of them think family first, you know, a lot of women, they, they, they have those certain touches to, Oh, you know, we should add this in there because that takes care of the kids while, while dad's playing football, something just as simple as that will expand and create that cultural and customer experience to bring everybody together. So now on a, on a Saturday, the whole family can go out there for a couple of hours, everybody getting their exercise in. And, and, you know, you got the women over there drinking uh, uh, um, their wine or whatever they're drinking on the sideline, watching, watching dad play. And then you got the competitive juices on the actual field. And then you got good vibes with the music. So it, it, it eventually becomes a bigger experience than probably what you guys anticipated. Am I right? Way bigger. Um, to the point where we were like, all right, this is, you know, we had to start hiring staff and we, we didn't think about that. You know, all of us were the, the founders, you know, it was five of us at the end of it, or at this point, 
And, you know, we all work full-time jobs, you know? It's like, whoa, we got to be here Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. Because the next we launched kickball league, then we launched basketball, then we launched a second football league. So we four days out of the week, we had pretty much the business was running, generating revenue, and people were out and about doing stuff. And so it was like, whoa, you know, we need to actually build infrastructure for this to grow. Um, so what are the what do profit margins look like in that type of business? I'm not I'm not trying to get in, into your particular numbers, but as far as the, the business model, what do the profit margins look like? I will say that the, the great thing about social sports is that the um, overhead is very predictable and very simple. So really, for us, there were four things that cost us pretty much all of our overhead. One was the access to the fields. Two was referees, because you can't cut corners on that, especially with Black folks. They can get worked up. They feel like they ain't getting the right calls. Right. Um, yes, big time. Yeah, That's, you know, That caused fights. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we learned that the hard way. Um, third is T-shirts or whatever you're giving to them. So for us, it was T-shirts. And T-shirts were really important because you want, you want your brand to to, you want each game to be a, a marketing opportunity, especially in the social media world. Everyone's posting pictures together, you know, highlight reels on their Instagram story. You know, there are people on the sideline with the cameras out recording. You know, so if you don't have your shirts out there, then you're, you're missing a very clear branding opportunity. Um, and so, and the last thing was just making sure that the social experiences were strong. So we had to invest in that. Um, so for example, every season we have some type of formal event, which will either be like a, a gala or a rewards ceremony or something, just something that will kind of put a bow on the season experience to make sure people are, you know, enjoying each other and not taking the sport too, too serious. Um, so those are the four elements of overhead. But the good thing about those overhead points is that once you know what they are, it's very easy to cut overhead. You know, if you build a right. relationship with the fields and you, you know, fold in some type of nonprofit cause, then you can drastically reduce your field charge. If you um, partner with the organization like a Coca-Cola or a local brand or something, they'll pay for the T-shirts because they want to get in on the marketing, right? With your referees, if you train up someone from scratch um, and have them being mentored by three professional refs and you got one junior ref, then you can kind of develop the next generation at a cheaper rate. Um, and then lastly, with the social events, if you get creative and start to build relationships, then you can start to have social events at maybe venues that are donated um, or at locations where someone works, you know, or getting, again, a deal on liquor sales, et cetera. And so it's a very, the, the, like I said, the overhead is very simple. So you can actually put more energy into like cutting back the overhead. And that's, and that's where your real profit comes in. Um, I will say, I mean, when you do the math, each person's playing, each player is a hundred, you know, pays a hundred dollars roughly per um, season, we have, you know, 400 players. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot of income. <laughs> so It is, uh, it is. So yeah, yeah when, you, when you do, and I'm just curious, this, this really is nothing to do with the, the pie, but when you do the, um, the football league, is it seven on seven? Is it 11 on 11? How do you break that down? Uh, we do seven on seven, three women on the field. Okay, mm -hmm. um, okay cool. But again, and how do you and and how do you do like the rule book? How did how does that go? That's actually an interesting thing. We um our rules were were kind of collaborative. We we took the national standard, um, but after a couple of seasons, we kind of tweaked it a little bit. Within within is still the national standard, so we'd be eligible for folks to travel for tournaments. But um, we tweaked it. We changed up the rushing approach. We changed up um, some of the um, you know uh, 
sportsmanship rules to make sure the culture was still positive. Like we, we kind of made tweaks, but we always um, had a captain's meeting. And so before every season, we had a captain's meeting um, during like the preseason, quote unquote, we reviewed the rules, reviewed challenges, ideas. And then at the end of all that, we would um, circle back with them after preseason is over and make any additional tweaks based on what the captains wanted. Um, so it was, was kind of collaborative, even though we set it, we set the tone, we made sure there was a space for feedback on the front end um, so we could avoid unrest or frustration. You know, it's funny, man, I have a funny story about playing flag. So I played, uh, I played in a flag tournament last year and it's not something that I usually do. I usually play basketball. And mm -hmm. um, so my, my best friend had me out there and he's like, just come. I got some extra cleats. I'm like, all right. He's like, we down a man. Just come through. You good. I'm like, all right, bet. So I go out there and I'm like, bro, I can catch, but I'm not as fast as these kids. I'm, I mean, <laughs> the time was like 20, 28. Yeah. And I'm, so I'm 29 now, but um, I mean, I'm playing football against like 20 year olds, 19, 20 year olds. I'm like, dude, like I, I'm not that fast anymore. Hell, I was never that fast. So anyway, I, um, I catch the ball and <laughs> I turn. So I catch, I turn and I'm running. So I, I juke, I hit, I, I, I cut left, boom, uh -huh. I break. So now I'm, I'm, I'm going, I'm going. So then I see somebody else in front of me. So I, I cut right, cut back left. And when I did that, I stepped down into a divot in the field and I hyperextended my knee. And it's the same knee that I hyperextended before. I was so pissed because I'm like, man, I did not want to come out here and get hurt. But, <laughs> you know, long story short, I recovered. I'm fine. But it's crazy because people take that so serious. So you said you guys have a captain's meeting. Man, people take like when they play in the league, it gets really competitive. And I don't think people understand. I mean, even on YouTube, if you just watch some of those highlight videos, some of those leagues can get pretty competitive. And if you have the right people out there, some of them play, have played professional football, not even in the sense of NFL, but they play collegiate football. They play D1 football. So you get you pick up a lot of really good athletes, especially in Florida. Um, you know, a lot of, you know, football is king here. So you pick up a lot of good athletes, some people who couldn't cut it in college or who got kicked off the team or some people who just got tired of playing and wanted to pick it back up again. So you just, it's crazy, man. And I, I was actually playing against this one guy. He was a quarterback. It was an older white guy. He's probably in his forties. I'm rushing the quarterback and bro, I kid you not, I'm running and I could never get his flag. And I'm like, dude, I'm faster than this. I'm faster than this guy. I'm, I'm stronger. I'm quicker. I'm younger. I could not get his flag. So I noticed what he was doing. So when he would, he would step back and I rush in, he literally would move two like two inches and just, just, just shift his hip as soon as I would come by. It didn't take a lot of movement from him to do that. And I'm like, wow. So when you break down the actual game of flag, it's totally different from tackle. It's not even in the same game. So yeah. he knew that. And just to have that, you know, that, that experience, he was killing me and he just ate our defense. So we lost that game. But So I, I definitely, definitely, you know, rock with the, with the leagues, man. Um, because you definitely get a lot of, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's definitely a lot of fun. And I'll say just on that point, we found, you know, we, DC, the, the culture of flag football in DC, there's a lot of great teams here, but there wasn't necessarily a lot of great leagues. And so once our league was kind of took off, we started attracting a lot of the really great teams out there. But 
we also knew we, we were attracting really great athletes from high school and college, not necessarily really great flag football athletes. And so we did a tournament in Philly where we took all of our teams, or at least the teams who were willing to go up against these teams in New York. So it was pretty much like a 10 on 10 type of thing. Man, they were out there getting it. They were kill, killing us, bro, killing us because wow, they had already mastered this new sport. And no, they weren't more athletic. They weren't going to jump out, jump you, outrun you. And they damn sure weren't going to outthrow you. But they knew the game, you know what I'm saying? They right. really mastered that art. And so it was a very humbling experience for our players. And I think they came back on fire because they were like, oh, man, like we're great athletes, but this is a whole new ball game that we should be great at, but it takes work. And so I'll never forget the teams from that tournament are still like super gung-ho now. And I mean, and that was a crazy thing. Like with flag football, when people get into it, you know, we had teams that were practicing three times a week just to play once a week. And we were like, oh my, like they are super- They take it serious. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But it also puts pressure on you as an owner, right? Like if they're bringing that, that type of heat, they're working on it two, three times a week. And then you show up to the field late and you don't have your flags ready and your refs ain't focused and the rules ain't being here, you'll lose them really, really, really fast. And so right. I think because they notice that and it comes out in the game. You know, people you know have, a poor production when they see one. Yeah, I will say, I mean, as much as I love the social sports experience and, and what we built, the customer is a very it's, it's a high caliber customer as far as like keeping them happy and satisfied. And so you always have to evolve. And kind of keep working at it, keep chipping at it, and then also just being creative and realizing like you're gonna—they're never gonna love you, you know. They're, they're never gonna love you, but they're gonna appreciate you for being the best option available. Um, so it puts a lot of pressure on you as an owner. Um, so yeah, right. it's been interesting. Can you give me one of your craziest customer experiences in the in the PBF league? Oh man, craziest experiences. Um, whew. I mean, okay, I will say there was a. <laughs> No names. <laughs> well, you know, in the social media age, everybody records everything, right? And so I think, uh, I don't know if y'all seen the new Kevin Hart special, but he talks about how like America's full of snitches nowadays because everybody's always filming everything. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that one. And so that's the tricky part is that people will have an entire, you know, highlight reel of, or recap of their entire season on footage on YouTube. And so then we just had a situation where we had one player who I guess was a little too rough or aggressive. And I agree he was, but you know, you see one play, you throw the flag, you call it a day. Um, but this one guy had had pretty much a, 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 a highlight reel of all the aggressive plays of this individual. And he put it in the group chat and everyone got angry and frustrated. And it became this situation where the, you know, five, 10, 20 people were like, advocating to get this guy kicked out of the league um and but i knew he wasn't a bad person and i think the owners were like well we don't think he's malicious you know but he's just just aggressive on the field but it was like this campaign to get rid of this person and so then that entire team was trying to stick up for him and it was like okay this has become this whole ordeal and yes it was probably you know well founded and and what it was but as opposed to us dealing with it with him one-on-one it became this whole organization-wide conflict you know because of that footage and because of those interactions and um was he that bad i i mean he was he i mean it was like three three plays and they were bad but it was also like you know no one got hurt but people could have gotten hurt you know what i mean right right so it was more and it's plus it's co-ed too that's the other thing so anytime oh no you know you 
accidentally, you know, not maybe I don't know if it's accidentally or not, but if you pick off a woman, then you know, people are gonna have feel a certain kind of way about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there's a there's a level of if basketball is a little bit different, yeah, than football. Football is way more physical. Yeah. So you know you Hard can't just friends on the football field because it is a yeah, very, very physical sport, very physical sport. So but I mean, I bas- basketball is a little different. You, you can you can cook, you can cook. <laughs> I think that's what it's tricky. Is just like we have built a community that was a very strong community, which is a beautiful thing. But when the community turned against him, and in turn turned against us to hold him accountable, it became a pretty challenging situation because now you have your entire customers organizing for you to deal with something. you know it just became a very right wow. what did that teach you about leadership though what did that teach you about making tough decisions because that's not something that that, that it's actually a really good learning experience what did you learn in that and for with that particular situation i think what we learned is that it's important to be your customers or your community they're going to talk about you or your product regardless right and so i think the biggest thing i learned is that it's better to be in the conversation than to wait for it to blow up into something bigger and then you hear the outburst or you hear the the last phase of the, like you, you want to know people are upset before a formal complaint hits you right and so i think um us being intertwined with our community allowed us to hear their concerns and frustration and kind of at least start building a plan out before it became this big boycott type of you know situation i think we avoided that um, but That's what I also good. learned, yeah, but what I also learned was that you also can't be too close. And I think it's really tough when you're creating a, a business or organization that's intertwined with your personal social networks. Like it's very, these are your friends, you know what I mean? And so mm-hmm. it, you got to be careful about getting too intermingled with your community because sometimes you will have to make tough decisions and people aren't going to like it. And sometimes those tough decisions may impact your friendships and relationships. And you may have to choose tough decision over your personal relationships and if that's the case then then frankly like if you if you, if you don't if you don't have that little division or if you're not willing to make those tough decisions because of your friendships then you're going to kind of be endangering your business and so um so that was kind of two things you, you want to be in the mix you want to know what your customers are thinking but you also have to still have some degree of separation or keep at least one person on your team that can be the bad guy that way, right. you know, you don't burn all of your bridges, um, but you also aren't being, uh, you know, you also aren't compromising the customer experience. Because that's a relationship-based business. And naturally, you're going to, you see these people every week. So naturally, you're going to build relationships with people, especially the people who come back over and over and over again. Yeah. So you, you you have no choice but to be close to this, to this group. of, And in that type of business, it's not like you sell them a, a phone and they go away. And you see yeah. them in, in the next year, you have to, it's a, it's something that you have to maintain over and over and over again. So yeah, you, I, I definitely can see how, how that could be problematic when you have issues. Cause they are like, man, I've known you for years and you didn't, you know, how black folk get, yeah. <laughs> I know uh, you for all this time. You couldn't do this for me. You couldn't do that. Yeah, I know. Yeah, right? I know. <laughs> it, it kind of like, you, you, you know, you're selling a subscription, but the subscription is not, you know, streaming services or a box or something you can hand them, you're, they're subscribing to a full experience over months of time, you know? And so you're right. Like you have to kind of manage those people relationships, you know, or you can just totally clock out of it, but you, but you can't clock out of it if you don't have a good system in place and good products, like good services and habits and culture in place. And so it's kind of that dance. Like if, if you, if you're, if you're still building your culture and still building 
the systems and you have to have relationships to kind of offset that. But once you get to those, get to that level where it's like running like clockwork, then you, I think you can start to, start to clock out and it won't hurt you, you know, but so much. Um, but yeah, it's wild. That was that whole experience kind of pushed us to, to get to that level. Um, and some people just weren't comfortable with it, even in our ownership side that, you know, there's a lot of emotions involved. So yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense, man. I want to transition to our Econics 10 um, so I can get you get you going. I know you got money to make. Um, <laughs> so the Econics 10 is just 10 questions that I'll ask all of my guests that come on. Um, number one, what would you title this chapter in your life? Oh, man, this is uh, destroy and rebuild. You know, I feel like um, the world is is kind of in a in a a weird situation where a lot of a lot of a lot of positions and leadership and corporate and, and industries um and experiences have kind of like fallen apart during this covid ex- covid experience um in, in that destruction like new organizations new movements new businesses are, are starting to to thrive and new individuals new influencers are all starting to find their space and, and grow and build so much more and so i think for me that that's definitely been the case um and so I want to keep growing on that. And I've learned that when, you know, the people who, who hustle in the night are, are the ones who are on top when the sun comes up in the morning. And right now we kind of in the dark, you know, that's uh, true. Number two, what kind of superpower would you have? Oh, me. Uh, ooh, 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 ooh. Uh, gosh, I'm really big in the superhero movie. So this is, this is a really good. I, I, I didn't even, so, you know, to depend on that real quick, I, you talked about black Panther, how you guys rented out the, the movie theater or whatever for black Panther. Um, I own the first um, issue of Black Panther. Not his, not first appearance, but I own the first issue back in 1977. Wow! Hey, man, yep. that thing is. You, hey, you. It's you one know. of my favorites. It's it's one of my favorites, man. Uh, it definitely is. It's sitting right in front of me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think on that. I think for me, honestly, it'd be um, having the superpower of like a Wolverine, where I could just bounce back. Because I think. Um, you know, yes, you could fly and shoot lasers and all that craziness, but if you can't bounce back, then, you know, you, you kind of have a, a time clock on your powers. And so I think that that's actually the one I want the most, because I think if I could survive things and navigate through through crazy moments or crazy fights and battles, then I'll figure out a way to win. You know, it's just yeah, kinda, like I'll, like Goku. <laughs> yeah, I just need to get stronger out. after every fight. Yeah, just give me some time to figure this out. I'll find the kryptonite. You know what I mean? So right, right. Uh, I think I'd be mine. <laughs> um, number three, what would you invest in right now if money was not an issue? Oh man, honestly, I think I would be buying businesses um, because there's so many businesses that are struggling right now, and there's so many commercial spaces that are just wide open, and there are a lot of successful business models that did well before COVID, and I think will do really well afterwards. Um, so for me, I would love to just have a big fund and start buying these businesses up the ones that are struggling, but have a lot of promise um, and keep them afloat until the next season of, of our country. I like that. Number four, if you weren't doing this, what would your other profession be? Hmm. Um, wasn't doing this. Um, whew, that's a tricky one. I mean, I, I really like um, creating things. Um, and like building things and I wish I had like a I wish I had time to really learn and like have a team that could help um, but I don't know I think I would want to get into like some kind of architecture and like start designing and building like homes or, or 
businesses or places. But I really like building movements. Um, but I'm realizing, especially this year, I like to build things physically too. Um, so I would love to have a space and support to, to grow in that area. I like that too. Number five, if, um, nope, not if, five dinner guests to have at your table, dead or alive, who would they be? Good Lord, that's a tough one. Um, she, uh, Frederick Douglass. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Man, Frederick Douglass, Dave, Dave Ramsey. <laughs> uh-huh. I love listening to talk about anything in the world. I'd probably put Barack Obama in there. Yeah. Um, I actually, you might hate it, but I'd put Thomas Jefferson in there. I mean, he he he, he would be interesting. He would be interesting. He created so much, you know. He I mean, did. Wasn't all good, obviously, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But just to just to be able to have that opposition in the room, not even say opposition, just a different perspective in the room. Yeah, yeah. That's 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 dope. I would I would love to pick his brain too. Like, hey, what did you think about this? What was your intent? Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I'm, I've always been a huge fan of Warren Buffett too. I would love to have him there because I think his 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 mind about money would be be amazing. Imagine Frederick Douglass and Warren Buffett like. I mean, they would. <laughs> right. It's the arc of America. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Especially if Thomas Jefferson was weighing in. Um, yeah, I think that's it. I give you five. I think that's, I think that's what I would say. That's you said Obama. Have. You said Frederick Douglass, Warren Buffett, Thomas Jefferson. You need oh, one, more. one more. Yeah. Uh, Dave Chappelle. Just keep it light. <laughs> keep it light. Yes. Keep it light. Light. light I, like that. Uh, I feel like Dave would offer a lot, but then we'll still have us laughing I mean, he'll time. probably start roasting obama out of nowhere <laughs> you're right he might go in on on on, on thomas jefferson's wig or something like that. there you go yeah <laughs> um number six your celebrity crush oh man um ooh-wee. um it was jada pinkett smith but she didn't kind of that whole been tripping and kind of threw me off a little bit. Uh, that means you might have had a chance. That's what you mean. Right, right. <laughs> the only one, so that's the problem. <laughs> right. Um, probably Carrie Washington. She still got a big. Yeah, soft she ball. a baddie. Yeah, mm-hmm. she a baddie. I love Carrie Washington. Yeah. Number seven, something that the average person would not know about you. Um. Well, I mean, I grew up on a farm, and so that's something that's I think very unique. Um to be a young black man who grew up on a farm that works in politics now. Um, I also don't like to eat chocolate. So give it up. What? Yeah, just don't, I don't like the way it tastes. Man, you healthy, healthy. That's my biggest weakness. I eat, I eat a lot of stuff. I eat fried chicken and everything else, but. Uh, oh, okay, just no chocolate. <laughs> Dang, <laughs> I feel that. <laughs> Number eight, your biggest pet peeve. My biggest pet peeve? Um, folks who just don't try, just don't try things. I think that really bothers me. I, I hate when people hold themselves back um, with no real reason. Um, so it's okay to fail. I'm okay with people failing. I'm okay with you even having bad ideas. Um, but when you're not willing to try and give it an effort, that's something that really, really gets under my skin. Yeah, I like I, I like that one too. Um, number nine, your biggest fear. Biggest fear. Oof. Um, man, at this point, it's, it's honestly just like, forgetting everything i'm trying to write and and put a lot of my stuff on paper and podcasts like this because i'm just afraid like i'm gonna be an old man and accomplish all these things and 
totally and not have any not recorded it's like it's <laughs> legacy oh you know i remember like yeah i think that would that would ter- that's the most terrifying thing to me it's not really failing but just not even knowing how it all played out right right the number 10 your most embarrassing moment oh man uh, i've had a few quite a few uh I think my most embarrassing one publicly was in high school when I was playing basketball. And this was like at the peak of my basketball career. There was a huge rivalry game that was going on and halftime hit. We're down one. I'm coming out the free throw line. And for whatever reason, the referee rolled the basketball and I stepped on the basketball and slipped and fell face first in front of both schools of people at halftime when nothing else was going on and just the whole world just did you get hurt that's that's a nasty fall (laughs) nah i mean i got up popped up you know (laughs) oh man like i mean everybody i knew or cared about was at that game at that point in my life and they just watched me eat it right in front of everybody how'd you bounce back from that I didn't. I just got. I just kept playing, man. I mean, what can you do? It's <laughs> all you can do is keep playing. He's got to roll with it. Yeah, that's <laughs> embarrassment. It's just like, yeah, you just got to keep going because you can't really, you know, you can't reverse time. In some situations, a lot of situations, you don't even have space to apologize. You just, it just happens. That's right. Right. You just got to roll with it, man. <laughs> well, that's it for my iconics ten, man. I I, I want to just say thank you for coming on to to do the podcast and. Um, what I need from you is tell people where to find you. Tell us what your business or businesses are and, you know, go ahead and just tell people how to get involved. Yeah. Um, so you can find me on social media, um, Twitter at Gregory Jackson on Instagram at the action Jackson, T H E action Jackson. Um, as far as my business ventures, um, you can follow the wave USA at the wave USA, learn more about our adventure, especially as we're getting ready to launch our big app. Um, you can follow at PBF Sports, PBF Sports. Um, and then honestly, if you can't find all that, if you go to my Instagram, I have a link tree on there. You can click the little link tree and get redirected to all of the work that we're doing, whether that's uh, Community Justice Action Fund or those two uh, business ventures. So, uh, but again, thank you again for having me. I'm really excited to, to be a part of this. And I've listened to the podcast. You have a lot of goats on here, man, a lot of legends. So, Hopefully I'll I appreciate them. that. I appreciate <laughs> that, man. And I'll, I'll link, I'll send the show notes. And so um, anybody who needs to get in contact with you, I'll make sure I have your Instagram and email, whatever you want me to have. So you guys go reach out. So, and anybody who's in the DMV area, I went to school with a lot of people from DMV area and you guys want to play or when you get your league back started, you start, start the league back up again. Um, definitely go support, definitely go out there and, and probably get bust <laughs> on the field. That's good. <laughs> yeah, yep. man. So, all right, man. Thank you so much for coming and enjoy the rest of your day. All right. Thank you, man. Thank you. Thanks all again. right. Man, stay, stay cold out there, brother. <laughs> yeah, I will, man. I will. I ain't even give you a shout out for, um, for being an alpha, man. <laughs> My bad.